Uh, last week, we looked at uh, the parable in Luke 12 on building bigger barns. And a foolish man uh, did not realize that his riches actually came from God. He failed to worship. He failed to be generous. And he thought to himself, I'm just going to build bigger barns. His life was taken from him that very night. And we asked the question, what are you building? Are you spending your time, leadership, and legacy building bigger barns for your stuff? Are you building the kingdom of God? And this week, we're going to look in Matthew, and we're going to um, look at three things from the gospel of Matthew. We're going to um, read the text, and we're going to do three things. We're going to look at the context of the text. Then we're going to look at the content of the text. And finally, we're going to look to Christ. So if you have uh, your Bible, flip over to Matthew 21, and we're going to read uh, starting in verse 28. So Matthew 21, verse 28. I'll give you guys a second to get there. And, and just a reminder at Awaken, one of the reasons why we read and preach and teach the Word of God is that's what God commands us to do. We're not here giving you self-help tips. But also, it's a sacred charge that Paul gives Timothy, a pastor. He tells him to read the Word aloud to his flock. And so we gather here to read the Word aloud to the flock. Something that's been going on for 2,000 years, an ancient practice. So let's read Matthew 21, verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. Yet later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? The first they said. Jesus said to them, I assure you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. But you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. Again, this is the word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. And so in order for us to understand this, we're going to dive into the context. What is happening? Um, I see some of you guys have some uh, NFL gear on. Uh, you know, season kicks off this week. College football kicked off. Really good teams are beating teams that you never heard of. Um, and then bragging about it seems kind of unfair. Um, but bullying does exist today, even in college. Um, and uh, it's, it's really early in the season, though, so nothing really major happens. The stakes aren't high. It's not playoff time yet. But in Matthew 21, it's playoff time. The bracket is set for Jesus. See, Matthew's already covered the seasons in Matthew 1 through 20, but now it's playoff times. And Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, is going to go through his playoff opponents. He's going to go through religious leaders. He's going to go through Jewish and Roman power structures, and then he's going to go through death, sin, hell, and the grave, and he's going to win. And the wider context of Matthew 21 is he starts off and kicks off the playoffs. And so we see in Matthew 21 that Jesus entered Jerusalem during the Passover week. It's the holiest week for the people of Israel during the year. He's been royally proclaimed as the Son of God, as the son of David, 
as coming from the Lord, the blessed one, and salvation is here. Again, this aligns with what was foretold through the minor prophets in Zechariah chapter 9, that the king would come riding on a donkey. Next, Jesus clears the temple. He clears the temple because there's money changers and cheap salesmen in God's house. And he says they're preventing the nations from learning about the one true God. This goes back to the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, specifically Isaiah 56, who said in a prophetic way that the Lord would come and convict God's people of robbing him of prayer and praise in his very courts. We see God's people were so busy with their financial transactions that they were not witnessing to the people in their midst. And Jesus has to clear that out. Next, Jesus heals many and he's praised by little children. They believe him and they praise him as the returning king, the son of David. Many religious rulers are upset. They tell the kids to be quiet and they, they say, Jesus, why are you leading the youth astray? And Jesus quotes Psalms that how magnificent is the Lord that he is a stronghold for children and infants. Even they will praise him. Last, Jesus is hungry and he goes to this flowering fig tree. Um, yet there's no fruit. There should be fruit, but there's none. Jesus curses the tree. And the tree immediately withers. And Jesus demonstrates his power over creation, echoing Genesis. But he also reaches back into the Pentateuch, into Deuteronomy, where the law is given. And he curses the land because God's people are not obedient and giving praise to God. They're breaking covenant. And God promised the people that if they refused to worship him, then their land would wither and not bear fruit. I know that's like four sermons in one. But I hope we're understanding the context. You see, Jesus, he's reaching back to the prophets. He's reaching back to the Psalms. And then he's reaching back to the Pentateuch, the law, to demonstrate that he alone has the foreknowledge, that he alone can fulfill being the Messiah, that he alone has the authority and worth and power to be king. And this is where we're going to start with this parable. This is the context of the parable. But you see, there's one big problem because all those things were acknowledged by the crowds, by the children, by the disciples, but they weren't acknowledged by the religious leaders. They weren't acknowledged by the people who knew scriptures the best. They weren't convinced. And they demanded of Jesus to know by what authority he does these things. So again, it's playoff time. Jesus steps in and he tells them this parable. Again, a parable has a prophetic confrontation with a staggering decision at the end. And in the Gospels, they often come in sets of three. And this is just the first one. It's unique to Matthew. And it's challenging because Christ is going to reveal truth and leave us with a decision. So let's look at the content of this parable. 
We're just going to go through verse by verse. We read it once, but we're going to look at the content of the parable. And Jesus has gathered these religious leaders around him. You know, if you're in the south, he'd start this off, gather around, y'all. Like, he's going to do some teaching. So again, verse 28. But what do you think? Gather around, y'all. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. So we're not told much about this man. Uh, he's a landowner. He has two sons. He's the owner of a vineyard. But we need to stop because any religious leader or scribe or expert on the scriptures would, would stop. They know what's happening. They know the context. We might not. And what is that context? The context is that in Jeremiah 2 and Isaiah 5 and in Hosea 10, all of those Old Testament passages refer to God as a vineyard owner. They all refer to God as the vineyard owner. And the vine is Israel. So this story immediately goes deep into the Old Testament. And it also goes in a depressing way, a way that maybe we're not familiar with. Because in each of those books, things don't turn out well for the vine. God is the vineyard owner, and you want to create a crop. You want to have a great vintage of wine. But your laborers continue to ruin it. And that's the context in the Old Testament, is the vine always ends up growing and doing poorly because those entrusted with caring for the vine fail. So this story, um, I think, again, deep, depressing, sort of into some emotions already. And I think by the time we finish, we'll also be deep into some emotions as well. So I'd love to invite you guys, open up your hearts, open up your emotions, because that's where Jesus is going to go next. It's not just an intellectual parable. It's an emotional one, and it's going to hit us there. And so the father tells the son to go and work in the vineyard. It's relatively straightforward, but two things stand out from the text. First, the father's charge, go work in the vineyard, it's not an optional. In Greek, the language is one of command. It's a, an imperative order. Go. The second, to go work, and that idea of work, it's really interesting because it's not dependent upon the will of the son. The father gives a command, but he tells him to go work. But he says the son's work isn't going to be just dependent on his effort, which makes us pause and think, why in the world, if the father is commanding the son to go as a command and work, but that word work, it's not solely dependent on the son. There's going to be something else that is going to impact the sun. There's an outside force or agent. We would call that a passive verb in English. The sun is going to be acted on. And that's so important. We're going to pick that up, but we're going to read the next verse. He answered, I don't want to. Yet later he changed his mind and went. So the sun responds emphatically, no, I will not go. Um, if you have a small child, you understand this. You understand what it's like for your small child to say no and to disobey, to wander off and go play in the toilet. Um, <laughs> sorry, I was just speaking about Phineas. I don't know if your kids do that. Um, 
don't worry, we gave him a bath and washed him, so if you're holding him today, it's okay. Um, it's okay. Um, the son says, I will not go. And in the ancient world, this would have been incredibly shocking. Oldest sons inherit everything, and they were to obey their fathers. And he says, no. Um, so I remember the first time uh, as a teenager, the first time I ever told my mom that I hated her. Um, as a teenager, I was mad about something dumb. Um, I was in the IB program, and a lot of times they gave you homework for fun, and they thought because you were nerdy that you liked doing homework for fun. That's not true. Um, but I remember I wanted to go hang out with friends. I couldn't drive yet, and like I kind of was like, Mom, I want to do this. She's like, all right, we'll do your chores, do your homework. I'm like, all right, all right. And came time to hang out with my friends. You know, you go to the movies at indoor malls. That was what we did back then. But my homework wasn't done. My chores weren't done. And my mom was like, well, you can't go. And I was mad because I could do that stuff later. I was smart. I could do chores later. I could stay up. But my mom was just like, no, you're not going. And I remember being so mad, just storming out of the house, just, you know, slamming our screen door shut and just be like, I hate you, mom, and walking down the street. Um, it sticks with me because I don't hate my mom. It sticks with me because I was mad and it took me about 30 minutes to cool down and realizing that I made a mistake. I told the person that loved me the most on the planet at the time that I, I hated her. This is what's going on. The son says, I hate you, dad. And he walks out and he leaves. He doesn't want to do the work. So as we continue to read that verse, though, we, we stumble upon something beautiful. The son who openly defied his father, he, he changed his mind and he went back to work in the vineyard. Again, two things stand out from that text in Greek. And the first is what I told you about. That, that idea that there's an outside force, that the, the sun is being acted on passively. The first is that the sun changes mind. And that, that word, it, it, it means that the sun began to pay careful attention to his father's command. The sun began to attend to it. The sun began to care about what his father had said. The sun began to think about the relationship. Um, another word in some of your texts says the son repented. He changed his mind. He turned around. In other words, the son is not arriving at this decision solely by himself. It's not like he's saying, well, I'm just going to go back and work. That's, that's the right thing to do. No, the father's love and command is the outside agent working upon causing him to realize the truth and the love and the depth of the relationship and the privilege and honor and worth it is of being a son and working in the vineyard. So it produces regret and the son goes back. And the second thing that stands out is the immediacy of the action. So regret is produced, sorrow is produced, repentance is produced, and then immediately, it's tied to he goes back to the vineyard. Repentance in Scripture is always tied to obedience. 
It's never tied to, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I should do that. It's tied to immediate action. If you remember Judas, who betrayed Jesus, the Bible talks about the same thing. He regretted his actions. It's one of the same verbs as used. He regretted his actions. He cared about it, but he never obeyed and went back to Christ. He never repented. He never returned to work in the vineyard. verse 30. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. So the father comes to the second son and says the same exact thing. It's the same command, the same idea of work. There's going to be a, a passive helper, something working on you to help you. Again, to remind this the father gives the command in a beautiful, touching, and emotional response. The second son addresses the father as Lord. That word sir means Lord. And so it's, it's rich and emotional and beautiful. You have this example of the first son who's defiant and rebellious and kind of finally goes back to work. And then you have this, oh, this beautiful story about this second son who hears his father's commands and with love and truth and respect and honor says, Father, Lord, I will go. And then the text screeches like a bad record on a track, but he didn't go. The second son refused to follow his father's command to work in the vineyard because he trusted in his own words, his own will. I will go. His own commitment. Those will not be enough. And this is a staggering plot twist. So let's keep reading verse 31. Jesus says, which of the two did his father's will? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I assure you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. So I, I love this because Jesus asked for an answer from this parable. He kind of pauses. Things get really awkward. There's silence. And these religious leaders are forced to grapple with the truth of this story, they have to make a staggering decision about who accomplishes the will of God. Isn't that what so many of us want to accomplish, the will of God? We talk about it all the time. They write books about it. We've done teaching series about it. And Jesus says, who did the will of God and the will of the Father? And they answer the first. I don't know if you guys have ever been in like a moment of awkward silence. Like, it's tough. Maybe you don't know the answer. <laughs> You're like guessing in school or Sunday school. I remember um, when I uh, asked my wife, uh, who's now my wife, Stephanie, to be in a relationship, um, we went to the beach. Uh, before we went on a double date with some friends, they weren't believers. Don't go on a double date to ask the woman that you want to be in a relationship with and one day marry on. Just note to self, it's kind of weird. Um, but we went to the beach, and it was awkward because, like, walked on the beach for, like, an hour. Like, I was, like, 
getting up the courage to ask her and to tell her that she was beautiful and I'd love to live my life with her. And then, so I finally did it. And right, it's like awkward silence. It's like nothing is said, nothing happens. And I'm like, I don't walk on beaches with anybody for like an hour. Like, what are you going to say, baby? What are you going to say? It's awkward. And then she starts laughing, which makes it more awkward. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's a yes. I don't know if it's like, ha ha. Um, but it's a yes. Praise the Lord. But I think we, we kind of know what awkward pauses and silences are. And we, we hope to get the answer right. I was hoping to hear the right answer from her. Um, these religious leaders have the right answer. Intellectually, they grasp the story. But Jesus is going to make it about emotions. He's going to make it about their hearts. He's going to define the relationship. And so again, he begins by saying, truly, I tell you this, and this is so powerful because we're talking about the authority of a king and and no one in the ancient times starts out their sentences with truly or verily, verily, I tell you this. Why? Because you don't know what they're going to say. So how can it be true? But Jesus is the one who declares the end from the beginning. He is the one who has the right to say this is true and you haven't even heard what I'm going to say yet. This is authority in teaching. And Jesus demonstrates it to these very religious leaders. And he says, truly, I say. So the following statement will be true. And he says this. Jesus interprets the parable and says that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering into the kingdom of God before the religious leaders. The kingdom that the Messiah was bringing would see hookers and crooked bookies enter in before the people who are doing the right things. And we have to ask ourselves why. Why is that the case? Two reasons. Um, one, we have to know what the hope of Israel was. The hope of Israel was for this reigning king to come back and to end all foreign slavery, to end all taxation. All oppressive burdens would be lifted to rid God's people of sexual immorality. And Jesus is saying that those people who are repenting of that they're actually going to be the ones coming in first to the kingdom. The unclean and deplorable ones will be first in the kingdom of God because they are repenting. Also, the words to those religious leaders that those will go before you, the tax collectors, the prostitutes will go before you in the kingdom of God means three things, that they're going from a hidden place. In other words, they're coming out of a secret, sinful, shameful place. They're coming out of that hidden place where they're trapped in their sin. They're coming out because they're passing through a trial. They're passing through a forensic judgment. And it means the sense of time. They're going to go before. In repentance, what is happening is these people are coming from secret, sinful shame that they're hiding in their hearts they're coming out through a trial of confessing that, turning away from that, leaving that, because they're going into the kingdom. And they're going to go before the religious people who've forgotten what it looks like to repent. Um, 
it was really cool. Uh, Frank and I were, uh, about two weeks ago, we were um, hanging out with some other pastors and church planners in the city. Um, you know, for those of you who don't know, our, our hope, um, our prayer, our vision for next year is to, to see a church plant somewhere in the city, and we don't know what that looks like, and we're praying about it. One of the things that Frank and I are doing is just trying, hey, how do we resource ourselves a little bit? How do we get around some other guys who are doing this? And um, it was really cool. It was really cool hanging out with about 20 other guys. Um, some of them had their wives there, just praying and believing in church planting and talking. And one of the things that uh, the speaker just shared, there's kind of a small teaching. That's what pastors do when they get together. They just teach some more. Um, but uh, it was a small teaching, and it really was like an aside point. But the guy who was uh, sharing just said, you don't graduate from spiritual disciplines. But somehow, even as pastors, maybe for some of you guys, you've been around the block in Christianity, you've been around the church for a while, and sometimes you can just think, like, I've graduated from spiritual disciplines. I'm good. We never graduate from repentance. And Jesus is going right to the emotional heart of these leaders and saying, they're going before you because they're repenting. Um, so we have to ask ourselves one last question, which is, what is Jesus basing all this repentance on? Why is this argument logical and sensical to these people? Verse 32, our last verse. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. So Jesus grounds his entire argument, this entire parable is rooted in the preaching and teaching ministry of John the Baptist, something the religious leaders were familiar with intimately. Matthew tells us, Mark tells us, Luke tells us, John tells us. Every gospel writer has John the Baptist in their gospel and in their account. All the religious leaders were coming and hearing him because John was widely regarded as a prophet, declaring the word of the Lord to the people. And the people... The sinners, the dregs and deplorables of society turned back to the Lord. They turned back to the law. They repented. They were baptized. They left their life of sin. And this was the way of righteousness. We talked about it. This was the hope of Israel, that people would leave their sin. They'd leave their immorality. They'd leave their oppression. And they'd come back to God in his heart. They were turning from their ways, and Jesus drives the point home and says, when you saw this, why didn't you believe? And I think the question we have to ask ourselves, well, what would they be forced to believe? Which is a, a great question for us. Why does Jesus ground his entire argument in parable on John the Baptist and not believing John the Baptist? So logically, for them to believe John, they had to believe that he was the voice crying out in the wilderness from Isaiah. And why is this so important? Because the exact text from that verse, Isaiah 40, says that that voice crying out in the wilderness is going to prepare the way for the Messiah and the coming king. They would be forced to accept when John says, behold, the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world and I'm not worthy, 
everybody knew he was talking about Jesus, they would be forced to accept that Jesus was the Messiah. And this, this they could not do. And perhaps sometimes, again, when this hits emotionally, perhaps sometimes the most terrifying thing about a parable and about this parable in, in specifically that these religious leaders had a word, had words and will and commitment to the law, and Jesus is asking them to change that allegiance because the law now points to him. And they're terrified and they're petrified, and the same is true for us. Sometimes we like our sin, and we're terrified and we're petrified to turn from our sin and turn to Christ. We're afraid of repentance. Even for people who've been walking with Jesus for a while, we're terrified of repentance. Jesus is bringing these religious leaders to a staggering decision in the light of all they believe in from the Pentateuch, from the Psalms, and from the prophets. At the last prophet, John the Baptist, the voice crying out in the wilderness is here, that the national hope of Israel is here, that tax collectors are turning to truth and prostitutes are becoming pure. Repentance is happening. And they are unwilling to repent as well. And so we've looked at our context and we've looked at content and now we're looking to Christ. Jesus is the king. He reveals his authority through the seamless interpretation of the Old Testament. And he brings these religious people to a decision, believe in the ministry of John the Baptist with the evidence of transformed lives and the royal proclamation that Jesus is king or don't go in to work the Father's vineyard. As opposed to the ones, the very ones who initially refused to work the Father's vineyard, who have messed up broken lives, but have realized it. Have realized that Jesus is the outside agent in force acting upon them to cause regret and sorrow for their sin. And so they repent and go back to the Father. And theirs is the kingdom. And they're coming into the kingdom before. So just to simply sum up what Jesus does in these five verses. In this parable, the Father is God. The vineyard is the kingdom of God marked by a community that obeys the voice of the king. The first son is rebellious, an outcast, deplorable, unclean, but repents. He regrets and repents. The second son, who is manicured, polished, his words and works seem to be impeccable. He has lots of respect, but he goes rogue. And so in the ancient world, the pride and privilege of being the first son, of receiving the inheritance, the one that the religious leaders thought they had, Jesus actually attributes it to the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners. You will be the first sons. You will receive the inheritance because of your repentance, because of your attention to the Father's commands. So now we're left with this staggering decision even today. Obey and serve the voice of the king in his vineyard. Or the second option, hear the same loving command and voice 
from the Father, but refuse to obey. The religious leaders spent so much time judging others that they never regretted their own failure to acknowledge the hope of Israel, Jesus Christ, as the coming king. He was right in front of their eyes. Jesus is right in front of our eyes. We say this is going to be emotional, so I'd, I'd love for you guys to think through three takeaways. Again, this parable was going to hit in deep ways. The first um, is hope. Jesus does not leave us as tax collectors and prostitutes. When we read this parable, we should be filled with hope. What the Father commands, he will help accomplish in our lives. We're not left to work on our own. Jesus worked on our behalf so that we might be saved. And just because you have sinned, it does not mean that you are alone. The highway is open back to God. There is hope for you. There is forgiveness. There is redemption. And it's in Jesus Christ. And that road back, that repentant road back is well-worn, traveled by many tax collectors and many prostitutes. You're not unloved. The second emotion um, is dignity and worth. You see, the first son sinned and he felt regret and care over his sin. So much so, he moved he was moved and he returned and he repented. He went back into God's kingdom and God gave him dignified, worthy work to accomplish. Um, when we return to work in the vineyard in God's kingdom, there's so much joy and worth. And I think maybe there's some of you out there, you need to hear that right now because maybe you feel like you're hard at work in God's kingdom, but maybe you're unnoticed. Maybe you feel insignificant. Maybe you just feel like it doesn't matter a whole lot. And what Jesus is saying is there is so much worth in your labor to work in the vineyard of the king. Last, shame. The emotion of shame. Again, maybe you're reading this parable and you're listening here and you don't know where you're at. Am I the older son? Am I the younger son? What's going on in my heart? Again, parables are about decisions. Um, scripture says that Jesus Christ takes our shame and nails it to the cross. Following the king, coming to work in his vineyard isn't a decision that you make on your own. You could be sitting here right now and Jesus is working on your heart to get rid of your shame because maybe you've never known him, but he's paid for that shame. Or maybe you've known him, you've walked with him for a while, but there's a lot of shame there and you just need to repent and tell someone about it. Jesus Christ has paid for that. And you'll find freedom and healing when you confess and repent from him. Um, it's one of the reasons why after the service, um, you'll hear some other announcements. But we have a prayer corner down here. If you want prayer for something, we'd love to pray with you. Um, last thing, as we look at, the, what's the difference between the older son and the younger son? I think the older son reflected on his father's words he also reflected on his own sinful words, and he saw that. He saw that sin. The second thing is he allowed the Father's command to work upon his heart, to sink 
He allowed himself to sink into the truths, identity, beauty, and relationships that he had. And he returned to the king. And last, the older son changed his behavior. Let me pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this parable. We thank you for these truths. We thank you that uh, um, these truths stand upon their own. They stand upon the ark of the Old Testament. They stand upon the historical ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And they stand today because they are just as powerful today. Lord, I pray that these these truths that um, we've heard today would sink into us that our emotions and intellect would align with the fact that we are in desperate need of a savior, someone who can nail our shame and sin to the cross, someone who, when we repent and confess, can come give us a big hug and say that we are loved and chosen and desired and worthy. Jesus, I thank you that that is what you've done. Lord, would you continue do that in our lives. And may we never graduate from repentance. In your name we pray.